Thank you for checking out the Detroit Church Podcast. We're a growing community in the heart of the city, and we exist to awaken Detroit to the greatest adventure of all time. Although the pandemic causes us to adjust our methods, our message stays the same. God, through Jesus, is making all things new. I'm going to ask you, if you could hold somebody's hand right where you are. Now, I'm assuming if you're in a home that you are quarantined or with people that you are used to sharing germs with. <laughs> so if you could just reach out and touch someone's hand, hold their hand, even the crew here, if you guys can, can hold hands. And um, yeah, it's, it's something powerful and special just to be able to, in a moment, reach out and touch someone. Now, I wanna ask you just to look down at your hand. Look down at your hand. And notice, how are you holding the person's hand that you are holding? <laughs> okay, you can let go. You can let go. Now, I want to ask you, was it one of these? One of these boys right here? Or was it one of these? Was anybody holding hands like this? Anybody in the room? <laughs> no, I'm going to lie ahead. Y'all can talk. It's okay. <laughs> Yeah, so, so, admittedly, if you were to hold hands with somebody and they were to reach out and want to do one of these where the digits are like intertwined, would that feel kind of weird? I would think that it would be a little weird based upon the person it was, right? Based upon a person it was, if you didn't know the person that well and they went out to do this, or maybe if you did know them a little bit better and they went out to do this, you may roll with it, but it may feel a little weird. Just a little bit. Now, I've been married for 23 years together, 27 years with the woman of my dreams, and, and for me, it's kind of the other way around. When we hold hands, it's the very natural, organic, organic response to hold hands like this. Matter of fact, when we don't hold hands like this, for me, it's actually a little bit weird. It just doesn't feel right. I'm looking at her like, is everything okay? <laughs> Can I do something? <laughs> Are we good? <laughs> Let me know. Holler at your boy. Now, there's a, there's a grip. There's a, a connection that that is represented in, in this way that represents an interconnectedness. It, it demonstrates an, an intertwining, if you will, an intimacy. That's why we don't hold hands the same way with everybody, because you can't be intimate with everybody. You can't be intertwined the same way with everyone. But there are times when one is appropriate, and there are times when... The other option may be a little bit more appropriate. Why is that important? Well, here in John chapter 17, what we have is an intimacy and an interconnectedness and intertwining of the will of the Son and the will of the Father. And clearly we see that they are one. Y'all, this prayer continues to rock me. I probably have preached this passage more than I've preached any other passage in some 20-some years of preaching. And it's still, I'm, I still struggle to really sit with and understand the weightiness of this passage. 
it is a theological masterpiece. It's a theological framework for sure, but, but more than just the theology, we see something beautiful, something intimate, something deeply relational that comes out of it. I believe, and I've said this before, that this is the most intimate language we have throughout the, the, the annals of human history, throughout all human literature. This right here represents something unlike no other. In just 24 hours, Jesus will be hanging on a cross. And as he hangs on the cross, he bears the full weight of my sin upon him. He bears the full weight of your sin upon him. The full weight of the sin of humanity is upon him. And here we have him praying and being intimate with his father, knowing full well what is about to happen in 24 hours. He knows that in 24 hours, he's actually going to cry out in his humanity. My God, my God, why? Why? Let's not forget what theologians call the hypostatic union. He's 100% God and he's 100% man at the same time. And as we focus on his divinity and his deity, let us also embrace and understand in his humanity, although he knows what's about to happen, he knows why. He had spent the last three and a half years preparing his disciples. Why? He knows what's about to happen. He knows the reason why. Yet instilled in his humanity, he cries out, Why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, for you Christians out there, for those of you who have a sense of God's ultimate purpose and plan in the earth, you understand the state of fallenness and brokenness in our world. You understand God's plan of salvation for your life. Do you ever still ask God, why? God, why is this happening? Why is our world like this? In his humanity, we see Jesus asking the same thing. I want to encourage you today that you're in good company. <laughs> you're in good company. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Glory to God. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Yet without sin. In Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And that them is us. So please understand this. Jesus knew what was going on. He was God. But it is in this moment, as my sin was upon him, as your sin was upon him, he cries out in his humanity. And he cries out like he had never had before. He says, my God, my God. Y'all, he... He never called his father God. Never. He always called him father. It spoke to, it spoke to this, this relationship. The word father means source. 
It spoke to their intimacy and their, their oneness. But in that moment, as he's bearing the sin of humanity upon him, we know that the Father is holy and sin cannot exist in his presence. And as our sin is upon Jesus, he doesn't cry out, Father. He cries out, my God, my God. But since he ever lives to make intercession for us, please know that while he's on the cross, he's interceding for us. He intercedes for us now. He interceded for us on the cross. And get this, he, he made intercession for us, for you and I, on the night before we died. And that is what John chapter 17 is all about. This chapter has been referred to because of that as the high priestly prayer. It is rich and weighty in its theological significance. It's rich and weighty. We understand themes like regeneration and sanctification and glorification. I, 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 we won't necessarily break down and exegete every verse today, but I want to give you this umbrella idea of what it represents for the Son of God, the Christ, to cry out and to pray first for himself, then for his friends the disciples, and then for all disciples of all time, including you and I. We won't cover the whole chapter today. We are going to cover the first two aspects of that prayer for himself and for his disciples. Why is this, why is this significant that it's called a high priestly prayer? Remember, the high priest in the scriptures represented something. They were a mediator between God and the people who were sinful. The people could not just go before God on their own will, right? They had to have someone to go before them. So this is what Jesus is doing. Now, I want to give you a quick, very quick glimpse of what the evening has been like so far. And we've spent the last couple of months talking about this. The last few hours or so, we don't know exactly how many hours it is. But we do know in the Gospel of John, it's the last four chapters, Going all the way back to John chapter 13. And what we have is a foot washing where Jesus himself pours water into a basin, gets down on his knees with the towel wrapped around him, and begins to wash the feet of his closest friends. Even his betrayer who was about to betray him that very night. He washes his feet. Just that alone was offensive to the religious mindset. The disciples were sitting there like, this is not right. They did not understand. Then we have the final meal, the last supper, where Jesus reveals that someone is going to betray him. And he kind of gives a clue to John, the writer of this passage. Then he lets them know that he's about to die. And then he tells Peter that Peter's going to deny him in just a few hours. Again, they don't understand these things. Very understandably, they are shocked and they are dismayed of what Jesus is telling them. He gives them a new commandment. He says, this new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So he doesn't just tell them to do something that is like, in theory, he demonstrates it. Now, as we talk about this prayer, let me just say this. It's very easy for preachers or anybody with a mic or a crew or a platform to talk about something and to come across very like arrogant, like we've arrived. I just want to tell you, as we talk about prayer, like when the, the disciples heard Jesus pray, and in Luke chapter 11, 
And in Matthew chapter 6, what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer, it's probably more appropriately titled the Disciples' Prayer. John 17 is more where we get like Jesus is praying the Lord's Prayer, but he gives them a model in those other references because they had heard him praying. And it, it ignited something in them. Like they asked, like, yo, can you teach us how to pray like that? And he began to give them this, this motto. But it wasn't something that he was just trying to teach somebody, but never personally demonstrated in an intimate way. It's very easy for me to stand here and to look at you and give you what it means to be a person of prayer. But I stand here today almost as a, as a dentist with crooked teeth. I stand here today as a, as a coach with a broke jumper. I stand here today as, a, as an over, overweight body works person. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> I, I'm pointing you to the source. I'm pointing you to the scriptures and the life of Jesus while experiencing a, a deeper longing and conviction to grow deeper in my prayer and intercession. What that means is that being willing to be interrupted in my schedule, sometimes in my sleep, to respond to prayer. I've had ebbs and flows in my life where I've been better at this and, and, and other times when I've been a little bit resistant to that. I'll tell you just this morning, I didn't plan on sharing this, just this morning, I set my alarm for 6.15. Six, and um, I woke up and I didn't wake up though by the alarm. I woke up praying. <laughs> I woke up praying for my wife. And I don't know if she, if she heard me, if she woke up, I, don't, I have no idea. But I remember being awakened from my sleep, praying, praying the word of God over her, praying that the peace of God would, would rule her and would guide her. Then I jumped up, looked at my, uh, my, my phone to check the time, and I'm like, my, my alarm didn't work. <laughs> I heard the Holy Spirit say, but your spirit is working. <laughs> your spirit is working. Now, when I went back to check the alarm, I actually did not set it for 6. I set it for 6.15, so... <laughs> But it was something in me that in my sleep knew that needed to be awakened. See, my flesh, my mind may have been resting, but the spirit never rests. <laughs> the spirit must operate in a continual place of rest with the father, with the son, and at every beck and call of the spirit. And Jesus lived his life this way. So he's helping them understand on this night that there's a new commandment that he's given them, that they love one another as he has demonstrated, as he has loved them. He consoles them and he comforts them with the promise. The promise of a future glory, but also the promise of a person. The promise of the Holy Spirit who would indwell them. He warns them that they will be hated by the world just like he was. But he encourages them to remain in him because he has remained in the father and his father is in him and that he would remain in them. We call it abiding. And then that even though they would experience weeping and grieving, even though that was ahead, that their grief would turn into joy into joy so we can imagine how they're feeling this is all in the same night almost all in the same breath the same message so to speak and i bet i can imagine like they're wrestling with this like they actually really thought 
that the Messiah would come in and overthrow Rome. They had a nationalistic understanding of how God would advance his kingdom. Kind of like how David defeated the Philistines and recovered the Ark of the Covenant. That was their context. So they were looking for this earthly kingdom to be established. But rather than building up a kingdom through political means, what Jesus does is he lays down his life. He lays down his life. What we learn from Jesus is that the way of the kingdom starts with the waving of rights, not the waving of them. <laughs> the way of the kingdom starts with the waving of our rights, the laying down of our rights, not with the waving of them. Jesus knows how much of a struggle that this is going to be for them. Jesus knows that in just a few hours, they would all abandon him. He knows, but he also knows that he has overcome the world and that they would do amazing exploits for the kingdom of God. So he prays for them, and based upon what he has just said, he goes to the one who he knows can ensure their triumph. Mm. This it's John 17. Now get this. Jesus actually repeats much of what he said the last few hours in this prayer. We see it in his language. He, he references his departure. He references the joy that his disciples would experience. He references how they would be hated by the world. He references the truth and that it sanctifies and, and it cleanses. He references the indwelling of Christ. And believers. But get this, this isn't some gloomy prayer. <laughs> he prays not just with intimacy, but with victory, knowing that the one he is connected to and praying to, intertwined with, is the one that will cause them to triumph, even though they're going to leave him and reject him in just a little while. Jesus knows. He knows. Glory to God. Mm, mm, mm. If you are wrestling with praying for, praying for somebody that, let's say, they ain't doing right, and you pray for them, and you pray for them, and they've listened, and they've done okay for a little while, then it seems like they're going in the wrong direction. Please know, Jesus knows. And like he knows, we must simply know that we are connected to the source, to the one who causes us to triumph and not relent in our prayer and intercession for them. Mm, I want to challenge you in that. Glory to God. Now, I want to read this prayer. And I'm going to try to read it straight through with, with stopping only once. We'll see how I do with that. <laughs> All right. John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, 
Glorify me in your presence, in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. And they kept your word. Hmm. Now... They know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, so much that Jesus has already given us. As he gives us this glimpse behind the curtain of the intimate relationship with him and the Father, this is the most lengthy prayer we have of Jesus in the scriptures. Again, this isn't just a model. It's certainly a model. But this is Jesus in an intimate knowing, letting his friends see and hear as he's praying. And he calls upon the holiness, the set-apartness of his father when he says, Holy Father, Holy Father, keep them in your name. He knows that for them to be kept... For them to truly be kept, they can only be kept by the set-apartness, the other-thanness, the holiness of the Father's name. Notice here again, it's not like on the cross when he says, God, my God, my God. No, Holy Father, Holy Father, keep them. As we look at this, we see who's doing the keeping, y'all. It is not their performance. It's not their intellectual capacity and knowledge. It's not the denomination that they're a part of. Nah. It's not how many times they've been baptized or going up to the altar to get saved. Now, I grew up in a church where we had some people who came up to the altar every Sunday to get saved. Now, hey, the altar's always open. Amen. But we've got to get to a point where we are really understanding what we're doing when we make that decision to follow him. What really is this? What Jesus is telling us that it is the power of the holiness of God that keeps us in this place of being sanctified, being regenerated, and being set apart. It is the Father who does the keeping that is essential for us to understand what is happening here in this text. Now, if I can just go back just a little bit, Jesus says, uh, this is eternal life. This is eternal life. Like, Please know 
that we aren't just waiting, looking at our looking at our end time watches, waiting for him to come back, like take us out of here at any moment. No, we have eternal life now, right here, right now. Eternal life is knowing him. It's being in intimacy with him, being intertwined with him, interconnected with him and his will and the will of his father. So this is why we get excited about heaven. This is why. Not because we want to escape the world. No, it's because we are already starting to get a taste of what it's like to be with him. And we know that in the afterlife, we'll be with him even more. It'll be even greater. This may sound romanticized for some maybe, or maybe even too sentimental. I don't know, maybe even boring. But if so, I would challenge you and simply say that it's because you have not got to know him yet. When we get to know him, have fellowship with him, then yes, our gazing towards what's ahead is not to escape something, but it's to have more of what we already have been given. (sighs) I would also say, on the other end of the spectrum, we think about what the afterlife looks like for those who are not with him. To not have his presence. To experience hell. If you don't have him now, if you don't know him now, you're only getting a glimpse of what is to come. In a much, much, much greater way. Jesus says, I've glorified you on earth. I've accomplished what you've sent me to do. I've manifested your name to the people in that culture to represent, to have a name or to give a name or to drop on a name represented the character of that person. It represented their character, their traits, their power. Jesus is saying, I've, I've done that. I've done that. Now, Father, keep your hold on them. I heard a story one time of a father who was walking along a busy street. Imagine a busy street in Detroit, like Woodward or whatever, Gratiot. And as he's walking along, cars are speeding by, cars are flying by. There's an accident. It's just a lot of commotion. You hear the sirens going by, and the son is a little nervous, yet excited and moving around and very antsy. And the father holds the hand of his little son, and and he holds his hand. And as he's holding his hand, it's to protect him from wandering away and running away and putting himself in the way of harm or in the way of danger. Now, If the boy's safety depends on the boy's hold on his father's hand, then guess what? Danger is imminent. Danger is imminent because the nature of small kids is to run, is to play, is to fall, is to be susceptible to all kinds of things that are around. So if his safety is predicated upon the son's grip on the father's hand, he's in trouble. But the father's grip On the child's hand, it's what's keeping the child. And this is what Jesus is asking the father to do. Keep your grip on the disciples. Keep your grip on the ones that I have demonstrated your name to. Now, this is actually one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible, y'all. So I'm going to submit this to you. And for some of you, maybe more learned or advanced Believers, you may have to pray on this, research this, study this. But based upon what Jesus has just said, Holy Father, keep them. 
keep them in your name, which you've given me, that they may be one. Even as we are one, what we see here is the source of the unity that Jesus is praying for. What that means is this isn't just some relational unity that Jesus is praying that we would experience. It isn't just some, I hope they all get along, or what we might call harmony. No, no. The request and the prayer of Jesus is actually not something we're still waiting for. (laughs) In all actuality, this prayer has already been answered. Because everyone who is in Christ Jesus is already in union with him and therefore in union with one another. There are some who believe that this prayer won't actually be answered until the whole church comes together in some kind of ecumenical display. And that is not the heart of this prayer here. The union that Jesus speaks of, the unity that Jesus speaks of, transcends denomination. It transcends ages. It transcends geography, race. It transcends culture and socioeconomic status. What that means is there is already a spiritual unity of all the saints. What that means is we are one. Yo, we are one. Not that one day we will be one. We are one. As much as the Father is one with the Son, we are one. Not by virtue of our agreement. Not by virtue of our activities because we have joint services. Not by virtue of our agreement with our practices. But by the spiritual unity that is wrought by the Holy Spirit in our salvation. Hmm. This changes the perspective of what unity really means for us. Now, I do believe as the chapter goes on, the good news that that third aspect of the prayer, when Jesus begins to pray for disciples or believers of all time, that out of that spiritual unity comes a practical unity, comes an overflow of harmony among the saints that we will realize Maybe in many instances we've yet to realize, but that only happens because first there is a spiritual harmony. There's a spiritual unity. The oneness that he's praying for is predicated upon a greater oneness. He had just told them and prayed before them that him and the Father are one. Get this, and the Father and the Son's invitation is because of their oneness, because of their unity, now we can be one. And now on this side of the cross, we can declare we are one. We finish the rest of this prayer here. Verse 12. He says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Wow. Family, the unity of the Father and the Son is not a mere model for us. It's not just an example for us. It is our very source. <laughs> it's our very lifeline. It is the power by which we draw from. And what that means is we do harmonious acts or acts of unity to achieve unity or solidarity from unity, not for unity. Let me say that again. What that means is our harmonious acts, we don't do for unity or for oneness. We do them from unity, from oneness. Why is that important? Because we can unify around the wrong thing if we're not careful. If the source is not the same, we can, I can harmonize with somebody who's singing on the wrong key. And guess what? I'm harmonizing with them. And they in a totally different song, <laughs> totally different key. And where my sound go okay to my mind and their mind, to everybody else's mind who has an ear to hear, it sounds ridiculous. Because we're in the wrong key. Unity is actually neutral. It's based upon a framework. So if our concept of unity is bred from a theological framework, we'll have the right meaning. If it's based on a cultural framework, then it will only go so far. It'll only go so far. So I want to briefly tell you what unity is not. Unity is not uniformity. It's not uniformity. The body of Christ is not uniform. Go read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, right? We are a body with diversity, diverse gifts. When you go to the military, you know, you are stripped of your, your individuality in order to create this uniform kind of unity. You have the same haircut. You are given the same schedule. You have the same outfit. And at graduation from boot camp, you emerge looking the same. Sounding the same, behaving the same. But in the body of Christ, we have this diversity, so it's not uniform. Unity is not uniformity. Number two, unity is not unanimity. Unanimity requires us to have absolute agreement on every single matter. That's not unity. Even in the early church, we see this disagreement around how Gentile believers should be brought into the faith. Some are having to have this question, like, shouldn't they be circumcised just like everyone else? And there's this, this huge conversation, debate even, that we see played out in Acts chapter 15. It is not unanimity. We don't have to agree on every single thing for us to operate in unity. Now, while we must agree on certain matters of absolute truth, while we must agree on certain matters that we will call the essentials of the faith, we have the freedom to disagree on many other matters without forfeiting our love or forfeiting our unity. I thank God we don't have to disagree on every little thing. Amen? Amen. Number three, unity is not unification. It's not unification. 
I actually don't think Jesus is as tripped out about so many denominations as many of we are. When he looks at his church, he sees one church, one glorious church, one triumphant church. Now, the concept of churches disagreeing over non-essential matters um, is okay. Now, why is it significant to us at Detroit Church specifically? As I begin to pray about what God was doing, this is, a, this is way before we even launched. I did not have a, an example, um, an earthly example of what this looked like. What I would call an interdenominational kind of thing. I didn't even know it existed. Now, at this point, I'm sure it exists somewhere, but it's something I, I had never seen. But I, but I, had, I had experienced the, the destruction and the division of, of theological pride, doctrinal arrogance. And even in our city, the church, the big C church, not coming together to advance the cause of Christ. I was involved in a big citywide, a metro Detroit event in 2011 called The Call. Some of you may have been there. And I remember being so excited about this, a 24-hour prayer gathering, but also being very confused and hurt that so many in the church, so many churches that I love and support did not want to be a part because of theological differences. They could not get behind it. Just the next year, there was another movement called Each that I'm blessed to have been a part of. In many ways, Detroit Church is an overflow, an answer to the prayer of, that came from the Each movement. Well, same thing. So many churches were not a part because they were unsure of what this was really all about. And, and this kind of has been our mold. We like to question things. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, we shouldn't come with a discerning spirit, but there are things that we must unite around that are essential and give room for disagreement around the non-essentials. There's a quote by our early church father that has been kind of wrongly attributed to a few different people. But from based on my research, it's actually by Marco Antonio de Dominus. And he coined the phrase, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I'm going to say that again. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I was asked recently when meeting with someone at Detroit Church and trying to understand our doctrine and what we believe and why we are the way we are, they stopped and just asked, like, where did you get this from? This interdenominational, we got Baptists, we got Presbyterian, we got those who speak in tongues, those who don't believe in the gifts probably are still out there. Um, we have a mismatch of all kinds of ideas and influences and representatives. And our desire has been in the essentials, we need to have unity. But in the non-essentials, we have room to grow and room to learn and room to continue to seek God. I mentioned a few weeks ago that, that we are on the last leg of a journey to install local elders at Detroit Church. And I'm blessed because those who are on this, this track to become elders, we don't all agree on the non-essentials. But there's lots of liberty and there's lots of charity and patience and understanding. But there is agreement on the essentials. Now, again, the unity and the agreement is not for something, it's from something. Ephesians chapter 4, as I wind down. Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul gives us 
what I would call seven pillars of our, our positional unity. Our positional unity. Verse 1 says in chapter 4, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body. Somebody say one body. One spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Wow. So here we have a theological framework for our unity. He instructs us to keep the unity, to keep the unity. So this is a picture of seven pillars. I want to break this down quickly as we wind down here. First, Paul says, one body. Say it again, one body. We are one body, y'all. Jew and Gentile, black and white, city and suburb, Michigan, Michigan State. Amen. Amen. Now, that, that may be tested this weekend. <laughs> they play this weekend. Got, glad to have college football back. Amen. But there was never meant to be this, you know, black church even and white church. Now, I don't, I don't dismiss the fact that there is, there does seem to be a black church and even a white church. But it is the result of sin. It's the result of injustice. It's a, a result of the misrepresentation of the heart of our father. But that was never his intention. Then we have, Paul says, one spirit. The same spirit of God that gives life to, to the person next to you if they're born again is the same spirit that gives life to you. Yeah. Now, yes, he calls us through various means. He distributes various gifts. However, there is one spirit. The third one, one hope. Somebody say one hope. One hope, one hope of our calling. Mm, my God. All Christians share in this hope, this hope of eternal life, or this hope of knowing Jesus and being known by Jesus. It's a common vision that we have for, for, as Christians look to the future, but also enjoy the richness of the present reality with him. You know, one of the great divides among Christians is how we understand the end times. There are whole denominations that have split and broken off because some are what they would call millennial or premillennial. They believe in the rapture. They believe that the rapture is going to come before the tribulation. Some believe the rapture is going to come after the tribulation. There are these great differences that have caused division. And they've caused the church to split. We have one hope of our calling. Let's emphasize the one hope. Amen. Number four, one Lord. Paul already mentions that we share in one spirit. Commonly called the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the promise. But here Paul is referring to the second person of the Trinity, one Lord. All true Christians, all true believers have been saved by grace through faith in the one Lord. Amen. The fifth pillar. One faith. Somebody say one faith. one faith. Amen. All Christians are united by one faith. 
Not a bunch of different faiths. The faith that Paul is speaking through here speaks to the essential Christian truths or the essential Christian doctrine as used in Jude 1.3 that says, the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. We've been given one faith handed down from all time. This is the basic fundamental doctrines concerning the Father, concerning the Son, concerning the Spirit, concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the God-man who died, who was sinless, but died for sinful humanity. And there are other core teachings that unite us, and they reveal that same faith that has been handed down. But true believers or true Christianity is not like represented as different Christianities. Well, you know, everybody has their own interpretation. No, no, not, not regarding the essentials. That's when we get into trouble. Number six, somebody say one baptism. One baptism. baptism. Now, Christians believe that through baptism, we have this initiation of sorts into the Christian faith. Through baptism, we publicly proclaim our identification with Christ. It's this outward show of something that is happening internally. Now, the methods may vary. The age we decide may, be, may, may, may vary, right? But every true Christian practices this, this essential ordinance of our faith. I got a call from my son. Actually, I pocket dialed my son this week, who was uh, in his senior year at Calvin, Ellington. And um, I FaceTimed him, actually. And I, I, I look at my phone, I'm like, what in the world? And uh, he was like, uh, no, you called me, Dad. He said, but actually, I was going to call you because... There's a move of God happening here in Grand Rapids. <laughs> he says his, his college friends and those from around the area in different schools like Grand Valley and Cornerstone are experiencing a move of God centered around a worship night called Met by Love. And he says, like, it's just starting. I've only been a few times, but this thing is starting to grow where young people are, like, experiencing God and wanting to be baptized. He said, they wanted to be baptized. He said, Dad, I might need you to come down here and help and baptize some folk. Yo, I, I was ready to get on the road and drive to Grand Rapids right then and there. I dreamed for that kind of encounter. Well, we don't, we're not baptizing people because we've been announcing a baptismal for months. No, it's because someone has made a decision right then and there. So we're looking for water, a tub, anything, anything. Oh, one baptism. And then... The last pillar that Paul mentions here, one God and Father of all. As those saved by faith in Jesus and the regenerating work of the Spirit, all Christians look to one Father. I love how Paul, we get a glimpse of the Trinity here. He mentions one Spirit, one Lord, and now one Father. And Paul makes clear that he is the Father over all and through all in all. You are created in God's image family and recreated through the new birth. Now, when we look, about, look at what it means to walk about worthy of our calling, can we say we do it from these seven pillars? See, sometimes we can have the wrong understanding of what unity really is. And I'm almost done here, but I want to give you just a few questions to ponder. I want to challenge you not to rush through these questions. To really take a minute and think. Are you someone who likes to gossip? 
Maybe you say, well, I don't repeat it, but you'll listen to it. Are you someone who has sown discord within the family of God, talking about another believer, another church, sharing information that you can't affirm, or even if you can affirm it, it's not building them up? Are you someone who has ignored major truths that unite you with other believers just to focus on other minor truths that tend to divide us? Is there an, an overfocus on those things? Are you someone who quickly loses patience with others? Or maybe you only give when you know you're going to get something back or when it's convenient for you to give. Do you hold grudges? Do you, do you spread rumors? I heard a story once of a preacher who was in a city and lived in a neighborhood where there was a lot of prostitution. And there were a lot of words spoken about this new preacher in the city and people were wondering where he came from, why he was there. And the preacher would hang out on the corners and he would talk to the people that were out there in the streets, whether it was a prostitute or whoever. And there were two church ladies, two older church mothers who had heard about this preacher. And as they're driving down the street, they see him talking to these ladies on the corner. And they shake their heads in dismay. As they're riding, they say, you know what, let's just pray for him. So they start to pray for him. God, would you deliver him from lust? Would you free him, Father, from that demonic spirit? And they go on and on. And then in the, in the spirit of prayer, they begin to tell other people. You know, the churches, yeah, you heard about what's the name? Yeah, uh, I don't know about them. Just pray for him. What do, what, is he okay? Yeah, he's okay. I don't want to say. Well, what do you mean? Well, I just saw him on the street. I ain't going to give no details, but he was on the street talking to a prostitute. <laughs> and the rumor begins to spread and spread and spread. A year later, this preacher has a physical battle, and he's in the hospital. And as he's in the hospital fighting for his life, word has gotten out that he was not actually there to be seduced or there to take advantage of these women, but he was actually there preaching the gospel to them. He was there listening to their story. He was there to hear them and to love them right where they were. And these two church mothers had heard about the story. And they had heard about the ladies, the prostitutes that he was talking to. How they had given their life to God. And how they, God had begun to clean them up and begin to send them out as well to do the same. And these church mothers felt so bad. So they felt convicted by the Holy Spirit and they actually went to the hospital to talk to him. And to repent. And the preacher's laying there in the bed. He says, I forgive you. He said, but I want you to take this pillow. And he reaches behind, gives him the pillow. And he says, I'm going to unzip it and go to that window. They go to the window and they shake the pillow. And all the feathers that make up the pillow begin to float in the air. The preacher says, now I want you to go. I want you to get every one of those feathers. If you can do that, you can control the damage that you've done to my name. However, you cannot do damage to his name. Family, when we operate from unity, 
We do so in a way that brings him ultimate glory, even if we are persecuted, even if we experience suffering, even if we are hated upon. This is the call of the church, the true church. And if this is you, whether it's rumors or gossiping or whatever, sowing discord, I want to ask you, or challenge you to ask yourself, why do I do these things? Why do I do this? Listen, we certainly didn't get this from the Spirit of Christ to move us towards division and disunity. But we did get it from somewhere. It likely came from one of three places. The world, the flesh, or Satan himself. And when I find myself guilty of these things, and it happens, it's happened often, what I want to do in my commitment to you and my challenge to you to do the same is to renounce them immediately, turn my back on them, and turn to the one who can free me and heal me and cleanse me, and then go to the person I've harmed and repent and repent. I want to ask you whether, I don't care who it was that has offended you or even misrepresented the faith in your mind. Maybe they've done damage to the kingdom of God in your mind. I want to challenge you to do what Jesus did in John 17, to stand in the place of intercession for them and not accusation of them. There are two main ministries happening right now. One of intercession, one of accusation. Jesus ever lives to make intercession. Satan stands before the Father day and night to accuse us. What side are you on? Father, we repent of our sin. We thank you that you are one with the Son and one with the Spirit. And you have united us and called us to keep the unity that we have received from the Godhead. Cleanse us, forgive us, help us to walk worthy of the calling that we have been called. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. Amen. Family, we want to be a pure people, a pure house. I don't care who it is that has wronged us, that's talked about us, that thinks differently than us, that votes differently from us, that has different ideologies. Let's unite around the essentials. Let's give a little room for liberty around the non-essentials. But in all things, let's operate in love, worthy of our calling. I love you all so much. Hey, get involved in a life group or a D group, please, immediately. Because although we're not meeting physically, the mission continues. Amen? The mission continues. I love you so much. God bless you all. We'll see you right here next Sunday at 10 a.m. Thank you for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, like, and rate. And if you're not already, you can follow us on social media by searching for Detroit Church.